chapter 2 tonight, uh, the Messiah's coming reign. I'm going to give a little longer introduction tonight as we get into the series than I will. I won't give an introduction to the Psalms every time, right? Right, I won't. So anyway, uh, tonight I am beginning a journey with you through what, I, what is called commonly the Messianic Psalms. And the Messianic Psalm is a psalm that clearly has the coming Messiah in view as a dominant prophetic theme. There are about, you know, it depends how, how you want to count it. I mean, some psalms maybe have one verse that has a, an echo of the coming Messiah. Well, would you call that a Messianic? You know, so there's a little bit of difference here as far as what we would call as a, as a dominant theme in a particular psalm. But there's, there's about 25 Messianic psalms. Uh, I'm kind of working it through as far as, you know, looking at each one that's considered out here as far as, you know, I might not deal with them all, but I'll deal with most of them. The first Messianic Psalm is Psalm 2, which uh, we will study tonight. The Psalms began about the time of Moses in 1500 B.C. In fact, Moses wrote Psalm 90. He only wrote one, Psalm 90. Uh, The series was completed sometime after the Babylonian captivity. And this means that the the book of Psalms developed over about a 1,000-year period of time involving a variety of writers, with God alone being the ultimate author behind all these human authors. The Psalms were the songbook of God's people, Israel. The Hebrews called it the book of praises. And the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, called the Septuagint, gave it the title Psalmoi, which means songs and specifically songs that were to be accompanied by stringed instruments. Uh, I don't know what uh, groups that are non-instrumental do with that, but, you know, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a setback to your position. Uh, anyway, Stephen Lawson says, And as the expositor opens the book of Psalms, he is like a mountain climber poised at the base of a snow-capped summit, ready to scale its towering heights. With each individual psalm, there is a step, a steep accent toward the heights of heaven, up to the throne of God. The Psalter rises high above the landscape of Scripture, transcendent in its beauty and magnificent in its grandeur. As the longest book in the Bible, it is quite frankly the Mount Everest of Scripture. You know, you probably make a claim for a lot of the books. I mean, they all have a part in the, in the canon of Scripture, but certainly the Psalms are great. Psalms is the longest book in the Bible containing how many chapters? 150. That's right. It's broken into five sections, with each section corresponding to one of the books of Moses. You know, we've got five books of Moses, so there's five sections, uh, each section concluding with a doxology. So uh, let me put it up on... Oops, I'm sorry, you're already ahead of me. Thank you. Uh, so we got Psalm 1 through 41, and then Psalm 42 through 72, Psalm 73 through 89, Psalm 90 through 106, and Psalm 107 through Psalm 150. Psalms, uh, not only is the longest book in the Bible, it has the longest chapter in the Bible, which is Psalm 119. Yeah, what's a couple chapters among friends? That's right. Uh, Psalm 119, which has 176 verses, and the theme of that longest chapter in the Bible is what? The Word of God itself. Almost every verse in one form or another refers to the Word of God. You really want to show up when I cover Psalm 119, right? It's 
It's only 176 verses. We'll probably only be here for several hours. Anyway, just kidding. Not gonna, it's not a messianic psalm. It's a, it's a word of God psalm. And of course, uh, the book of Psalms also has the shortest chapter in the Bible. Jim, I'm going to give you one more chance here. It's okay. Psalm 117. Psalm 117, you know, you got two, two verses. Yeah. So anyway, uh, by the way, about one-third of the New Testament quotations from the Old Testament are taken from the book of Psalms. Specifically, 112 of the 360. So of the 360 quotes in the New Testament that tie in one form or another to the Old Testament, 112 of them are taken from the Psalms. Again, Lawson says, No other book of the Bible is so interwoven into the fabric of the whole of Scripture. Psalms contains more Messianic prophecies of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ than any other Old Testament book, other than possibly, who might the other contender be? You didn't know this was going to be so interactive, did you? (laughs) Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah has a huge amount of Messianic prophecies as well. Well, the Messianic content is so strong in the Psalms that following his resurrection, Jesus singled out this portion for special mention as he, as, as prophetically speaking of him. And we find this in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. This is after his resurrection. And, and he said that to them, as we find there, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses... One category of the Old Testament. Uh, The prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Very specifically mentioning the Psalms in which he is prominent prophetically. The Psalms present history, doctrine, theology, having a key emphasis on prophecy and typology related to the person of Christ. The Psalms speak of Christ's birth, humiliation, deity, ministry, rejection, betrayal, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and reign. The person of Christ is so prominent that the Psalms has been called the hymn book. You get what I'm saying? The H-I-M book. Not H-Y-M-N, but H-I-M. The hymn book, right? It's all about him. It's all about the Messiah. Uh, Or certainly great emphasis there. Now, there are all kinds of psalms that have application to the whole of life. I don't know about you, but I like to read a psalm every day. I like to read a proverb, a chapter in Proverbs. I like to read a chapter in Psalms. Uh, you know, it's, there's something there for you. No matter what you're going through, Psalms has something for you. Consider the different kinds of psalms there are. There are royal psalms. I'm not going to describe each one of these, but just tell you. The royal psalms, alphabetic psalms. Uh, penitential psalms, messianic psalms, which we are talking about one tonight, imprecatory psalms, some of my favorites are found there. Just kidding. (laughs) Hallelujah psalms, ascent psalms, wisdom psalms, lament psalms, thanksgiving psalms, pilgrimage, or uh, as I've already mentioned, ascent psalms, uh, enthronement psalms, all kinds of psalms as far as how you could categorize them. Well, David wrote about Half the Psalms, 73 of them, to be specific, as far as what we think David wrote, including Psalm 2. Now, in Psalm 2, there's no superscription over Psalm 2 that says David wrote it, as many of the other Psalms have. However, the New Testament writers 
definitely attribute it to David. So we know David wrote it because the New Testament writers tell us so. Psalm 2 can be neatly outlined in this way. It breaks up very nicely. You've got 12 verses and uh, you've got, you know, four stanzas here, as it were. Psalm uh, 2, 1 through 3, the audacity of human rebellion. 4 through 6, the divine response. 7 through 9, God's son established as ruler over all. And then finally, an appeal to submit to the son. Now, the setting is the history of human rebellion that climaxes in the tribulation period. I mean, the climax is in uh, the sun being set on his throne in Jerusalem. Humanity wants to rule itself without interference from God. Really, the great issue is, who's going to rule? Who's going to be in charge? Humanity wants to kind of run their own show. And God says, no, it's my show. I, I am the Lord. I, I am going to run this. And so there's, there's a, a little struggle here uh, in terms of humanity. But in the end, God will set his son as king over all the earth. This is about who will rule over humanity. The divine response is that it will be the one whom God calls my king and my son. Well, let's pick it up. Psalm 2 and verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? This is a rhetorical question of astonishment. You see, it's absurdly crazy, certifiably crazy, that the nations would rage and plot an overthrow of God's sovereign rule, which is what they're doing. It's totally futile and destined for total failure. And that's why he says, why rhetorically? This is crazy. Why would they do this? It makes no sense. William MacDonald says, their boasts and threats are the squeaks of a mouse against a lion. And we might add, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Why? It's crazy. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that's Yahweh, and against his anointed. This is a conspiracy. It's not a theory. This is truth. This is a conspiracy of world leaders to defy the Lord. That is Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, and his anointed. That's the Christ, the Messiah, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. These world leaders are plotting and planning on how they can break free from the lordship rule of God and his Messiah. There is a God who is in charge. And they don't like it. God the Father and the Messiah are here linked together. As Jesus said, God the Father has ordained that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. At this point, they do realize they are dealing with God and his Messiah. Did you catch that? They set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing. They know what they're doing. This is not sheer ignorance. They are not denying the existence of God and his anointed one. You know, people can be believers in an academic sense, in a mere intellectual sense. Uh, the demons are in that category. They know who God is fully, and yet they're in rebellion. That's where these people are. 
It's not that they don't believe in his existence. They do. They're just in rebellion against him. And they are so naive as to think that they can come together and overcome God's power. You know, that's really a huge ego. you got a really big ego, a really big view of yourself, and a really small view of God. That's crazy. That's crazy talk, crazy counsel. But note they set themselves. They are steeled in their unified rebellion. They have the audacity to take on God and the Messiah. That's a crazy position. Verse 3. Here's, here's their attitude. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. The setting here ultimately relates to the coming day of the Lord when God's worldwide judgment will become very evident. As we move along in the psalm, we'll see that. The whole world will, in the day of the Lord, realize that the God of the Bible is upset and is dealing with them. I mean, it's going to be a worldwide thing. I mean, you had a worldwide thing with the flood. And really, after that, we've had, you know, different events at different times where God showed his judgment. But this is going to be a worldwide event. And when the day of the Lord comes to be, you know, God always has a witness on the scene. And out of the shadows, suddenly, will step these two special witnesses, as we find in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. And they will make it known very clearly that they represent the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and His Christ. And no one will be able to stand against these two witnesses, as we find in Revelation, chapter 11. It will become very evident uh, to the whole world. And uh, notice uh, what they say as we move on in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 15. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves, the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. Again, they recognize God and his Christ even the lamb, the one who's died for the sins of the world. But they're not submitting. They're in rebellion. And, and what's their concern? For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand and realize we got a problem here. Might be a good time to submit. Doesn't seem like they are. What is amazing is that these rebel leaders, although they know what is going on, refuse to repent. They refuse to submit to the God of heaven and his Christ. You know, just because people have evidence of the true God doesn't mean they're going to submit to it. Pharaoh had all kinds of evidence. Uh, all the plagues that God brought on Egypt. I mean, Pharaoh was forced to acknowledge time and time again, yeah, the God of Israel, he's real. But he wouldn't submit to him. These are in that position. This is a lordship issue. That's what the day of the Lord is all about. It's a lordship issue. And it's about these people refusing to humble themselves under his lordship authority. This is a great issue in life, by the way. Depravity hates the bonds that God has put in place. We see rebellion against this everywhere in our society right now. Even the very laws of nature that God has put in place. 
They want to be free from all God-ordained regulations and restrictions. It's what depravity is all about. It's what the devil is all about. And this is the devil's world system. The system of rebellion called the world in the Bible. They want no God-ordained restraint, no Bible standards, no accountability. They demand to be the master of their own fate. They hate the narrow way, which is provided by God in Christ. They detest God's moral boundaries. They despise God's chosen people. They hate God's absolute truth. And they conspire to break free from it. I submit to you, we see this spirit all around us today. We see this in our world today as they pass laws approving absurd things. Claiming that biological men, for example, can now be women. And vice versa. It really, you, this is the definition of insanity. I mean, we have insanity. And we're legalizing insanity. It's crazy. This is an example of counseling together to try and defy God's bonds and cords that he has ordained even in nature. As God said to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. You think you're making it better for themselves? No. The more they kick, the more painful it becomes for them. But they are kicking and they are conspiring and they are determined to try and break free from God's rule. In the day of the Lord, God makes the issue of his lordship very clear. But the world's leaders take counsel together to resist. It comes to a climax as heaven is opened and Christ is presented as coming on a white horse, accompanied with the armies of heaven. But the kings of the earth array to fight against him. We see here in Revelation 19. You know, I think if I saw the heavens opened and, and this glorious spectacle of, this, of the king coming on this white horse in power and glory, I think I'd get on my knees. But that's not what they're going to do. Revelation 19, 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth who are supportive of him. I mean, they, they have committed allegiance to him. They've taken the mark of the beast. And their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This is against Christ. Well, what's God's response to this collective uh, worldwide rebellion against the rulers of the world who are in rebellion? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. David here speaks in anthropomorphic terms, uh, meaning he attributes to God human characteristics, as we often find in the scriptures. But I want you to note God is not concerned he sits enthroned in the heavens and he laughs in the sense of contempt or scorn. Derision is the idea of laughing in a mocking way. Right now, you see, God is speaking to the world in grace. This is the age of grace. And the message of grace, the gospel of grace, is going forth, inviting people to come before judgment day falls. But suddenly the day of the Lord judgment will fall upon them and God will speak to them in his wrath. That's what the day of the Lord judgment is all about. 
And this will truly be sinners in the hands of an angry God. And God in his deep displeasure, the deep displeasure of his anger, will distress and terrify them. The rulers of the earth seek to defy God's lordship as they set themselves against him. But God will set his king on his holy hill of Zion. It's, this is what we call a prophetic perfect, meaning it's so sure to come to pass that it is spoken of as being already fulfilled, even though it is yet future. God's king is the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his holy hill is the temple mount. The word Zion literally means fortification. It's essentially synonymous with Jerusalem, the old city of, of David. Uh, Zion, in effect, uh, is uh, the southern hill, the southern uh, eastern hill of Jerusalem. This is where David built his royal palace and where Solomon later built the temple. Zion signifies the epicenter of God's rule and his presence on earth. So Zion at core refers to the temple mount, but is also used in reference to the entire city of Jerusalem, the land of Judah, and even to the entire nation of Israel as a whole. So the context determines the exact nuance. Uh, but again, it means fortification, uh, the, the special place uh, where God fortifies himself and, and it's a special power center, God's power center, as it were. It most generally refers to Jerusalem and specifically to the Temple Mount, which is the case here in the context of Psalm 2. Well, the rulers here clamor for world domination, but it's already settled. God has already chosen his king who will be established in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Verse 7 the Messiah now speaks. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Hey, how's that for breaking resistance? They want to break through from his cords? He says, I'll break you. He's going to break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. I mean, when he rises up to judge the earth, nobody's going to stand against him. The king who is the son now speaks, recounting what the father has promised him. The rulers want to break away from God's restraint, but this is what God has decreed, and it cannot be broken. Yahweh said to Messiah King, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now this is a declaration by the Messiah of what God has already decreed. It's as if the Messiah, God's king, steps forward to affirm that indeed he is the true Messiah that has the God-ordained right to rule the nations. Now let's talk about this phrase for just a little bit here. Uh, this phrase, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now that has caused a lot of ink. A lot of ink has been shared here uh, about what does this mean? Well, as the Son of God, Jesus is eternally the Son, meaning he is of the very nature of God, eternally God, and God of very God. He is eternally the Son of God. It speaks of the relationship of the Trinity. You see, Jesus did not become the Son of God. He has always been the Son. God the Father sent the Son as the Son. He did not become the Son. 
He was sent. He was already the son. The father sent the son. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 tell us that by the son, all things were created. He was always and already the son for all eternity. So what does this phrase, you are my son, today I have begotten you, mean in this context? Well, in context is what God promised to David in the Davidic covenant as found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That he would have a son, that is David, would have a son who would have an eternal throne. That is a declaration that the king in view is this son. It is a declaration that he is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the son of David who will forever sit on David's throne in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount as seen in verse 6. Thus, the son of David is uniquely God's son. When did God's son, as the son of David, experience this pronouncement? Well, the answer is found in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, which makes it clear that this took place in the resurrection. We don't have to wonder about this. Scripture interprets Scripture, and when Scripture interprets Scripture, you should probably go with that interpretation, right? That's what I would think. Acts 13, 33, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus, the resurrection, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So he connects this phrase to the resurrection. So there is a sense, properly understood, in which God begot Christ on resurrection day. Now it's important to note that begotten in Psalm 2-7 does not have the sense of conception. It commonly means to bring forth in the sense of giving birth. Now understand that the Jews understood the realm of death, that is Hades, to be a type of womb that would one day give up or bring forth those who are kept there. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, associated the idea of birth with Christ's resurrection. Let me show you. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Peter speaking, whom God raised up, the resurrection, having loosed the pains, literally birth pangs, more literally, having loosed the birth pangs of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So let me cut to the chase. These guys have really done some work. George Zeller and Reynolds Showers, uh, they wrote a book called uh, The Eternal Sonship of Christ. It's a really great work. But here's what they say. Just as a, just as a baby, I should have A in there, is hidden from sight in, its, in his mother's womb until he is brought forth on the day of his birth, so Christ, after his death, was hidden from sight in the womb of the earth until God brought him forth on the day of his resurrection. Thus, on Christ's resurrection day, God begot him in the sense of bringing him forth alive from the grave. I think that's what we have here. When you compare Scripture with Scripture, that's what we're talking about. The resurrection of Christ was God's way of affirming that Jesus is his son, who is the son of David, who fulfills the decree found in Psalm 2-7. After the resurrection is the affirmation that the son who is the king will receive from the father the nations for his inheritance and the ends of the earth for his possession. What proof of this decree? 
Look at the resurrection. Just as sure as the resurrection was fulfilled, this will yet also be fulfilled. Verse 9 affirms that indeed the Messiah Jesus will break the nations with a rod of iron and shatter all resistance as though breaking a piece of pottery into pieces, smashing it to smithereens, as we might say. Verse 9 describes Christ coming to the earth and putting down all rebellion as he begins his millennial rule. Three times in the book of Revelation, it is declared that Christ in conjunction with his second coming will come to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. Revelation 2.27, 12.5, and 19.15. In fact, this is of great interest. It should be to you. Revelation 2.26 and 27, there Christ promises that overcomers will share with him in this Rule. Notice what Christ says specifically there. Revelation 2, 26, 27. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. What kind of power? Well, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Are you kidding me? You talk about sharing in Christ's rule. That's what's being described. They shall be dashed to pieces like the, pot, like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. Christ says, those overcomers are going to share in his rule. This being described is total ruling authority. This is destined for the son who is the king. No wonder verse 1 begins with a tone of astonishment. Why, why would you ever, ever think about taking on this king? Verse 10. Now therefore, be wise. Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. It's still the age of grace. And the appeal of invitation is still going forth. And here, the target is the political leaders the judges of the world, the kings, those key leaders. These are the major movers and shakers that influence the whole of society in the world. And God has a message for them. It's about His Son. It's from the Old Testament. It's the Messianic Psalm of Psalm 2. They should take a warning that resistance is futile. God has determined that His Son is going to rule. Like it or not. The Supreme Court should realize they're not the supreme judge. God is king. God rules. God is the final judge. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, 31. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he would judge the world. Judgment day is coming. What should you do about it? Repent. He has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. That's Jesus Christ. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The kings and the judges of the earth are exhorted to be wise and in repentance turn and serve the Lord with reverential fear and in that position rejoice with trembling. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
This is the exact opposite of the attitude we find in verses 1 through 3, where they're, total, uh, they're in total defiance. This is really descriptive of true saving faith. The repentance involved in true saving faith. It denotes a change of heart that turns from self-oriented rebellion to submission to Christ as Lord and Savior. Warren Wearsby says, True believers know what it means to have both fear and joy in their hearts. Love for the Lord casts out sinful fear, 1 John 4, 18, but perfects godly fear. We love our Father, but still respect His authority. To kiss the Son is the idea of paying homage to Him. Kiss is a euphemism for worship. It is to submit to and reverence His Lordship authority. Again, I think this whole psalm is about lordship authority. That's what it's about. Those that refuse to repent and embrace the Son as Lord are in danger of experiencing His anger in which they perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little, which emphasizes it could break forth suddenly at any time without warning. In contrast, blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. The idea of trusting him is to submit to him for who he is as the king, as the son of God, who has the sovereign right to rule and thus find refuge in him. Saving faith is an act of worship as seen in John 4, 23 through 24 and Philippians 3, 3. And that's reflected here in Psalm 2, 11 and 12. Bible knowledge commentary says this, serve, rejoice, fear and trembling describe the religious responses of the righteous in worship. They are to lead lives of submission, not rebellion, lives characterized by fear and trembling, not arrogance, lives filled with God-oriented exaltation, not the gloom of oppression. Only in worshipfully embracing the Son in saving faith is there safety from the wrath of God. A clear choice is set before these leaders of the world. If I had a chance to speak to the Supreme Court or to the President and his cabinet, Psalm 2 would be a good choice. Be my last meeting there, pretty sure. <laughs> but it's what God has to say to them. You know, we could pray this over these people, that they would listen to God and what he has to say. A clear choice is set before these leaders. There are those who will perish in contrast to those who are blessed, all depending on what they do with Jesus, God's Son, who is the Messiah. This is the ultimate issue. It's all about Jesus. And that's the issue for every person in the world. The outcome of who will ultimately rule the world is not in question. We know where it's going, my friends. God has decreed it. It's a determination made by God. And God has decreed that His Son will rule. Proven, demonstrated, Stated very clearly in the resurrection. The only question is, where in the end will we stand individually with Jesus? And that's the issue for all the leaders of the world. The response of defiant rebellion in Psalm 2, 1 through 3 is totally irrational. I'm telling you, a lot of what we see going on amongst the leaders of the world and in our own country is pure insanity. Spiritually speaking, it's crazy. It's astonishing. It's irrational. Why would any sane person ever do this? In contrast, wisdom that submits to the Son, as seen in verses 10 through 12, is totally rational. It's the wise thing. 
Blessed is the idea that all is well in experiencing the goodness of God. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The Messianic Psalm of Psalm 2 depicts the sovereignty of God over the rulers and judges of the world. You know, there's that, that key proverb, Proverbs 21.30. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. I don't care how many think tanks you get, how many talking heads you get together. You're not going to come up with something to have something against God. There's not some little strategy that's going to work. It's never going to work. That's what Psalm 2 is telling us. It's a great encouragement in these last days of apostasy and rebellion against all that the Bible stands for. Psalm 2 stands. The decree of God stands. God will set his king on his holy mountain, on his temple mount. In the end, the decree of God will stand for all eternity. God's king will reign forever from David's throne, just as God has decreed. Indeed, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Let's stand and have our closing song.